Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. In this episode, I'm going to tell you a little story. And this story starts with my son. You've heard my son do his little intros and stuff. And by the way, he keeps asking me, Dad, why don't you interview me for the podcast? And I've tried to figure out a way to make that happen. Uh, you know, he doesn't really play any bluegrass at this point, And I'm trying to figure out how, how I can do that. I may just do it anyway. And all you folks out there can, uh, you know, just enjoy it. I, I may do that. He, he wants to be interviewed on the show. So we might call it a bonus episode, but anyway, not too long ago, we were digging around upstairs through some of my old music books and just piles of stuff that I have. And up came an old photo album and he's turning the pages through this old photo album. And it's, it's just a book that I stuck pictures in and flyers and ticket stubs and things like that, going all the way back to when I first started playing bluegrass. You could call this the bluegrass archive of Brad Laird. So he's flipping through there and he, he's, he's looking at the different pictures and I have to actually point myself out in the pictures um, because I don't look much the same as I did back, you know, 1978, that kind of stuff. Anyway, he stops on this one picture and he, he points at this guy in a photo and he says, Hey dad, who's that? And I said, that is Tom T hall. And I, and I, and I kind of took over and I said, and that's, that's our guitar player, Joe Wright and our banjo player, Mark Graves. And on this side is goose, uh, Barry Cantrell, our bass player. And that's me. And that's Tom T hall there in the middle. And I, I begin to try to explain this picture and he turns the page and, just keeps looking through the book. He didn't really want to hear the story, but it got me to thinking of the story of that photograph. And I thought, Hey, it's my podcast. I can tell any story I want to pretty much do whatever I want to with this thing. And I thought today I was thinking about that photograph and that story I wanted to tell my son. And I thought, well, I'll just bore you to death with the story. Now, I don't know if you some of you surely remember back in the days of film cameras. There was, uh, you know, back in the old days, I had a little brownie and you had that, uh, I forget what it was called, 126 film. And you, to change the film, you had to go in the closet. You could not change it out in broad daylight or you'd wreck, you know, potentially wreck all the film or certainly the first few frames. But Kodak came out with a thing called the Kodak Instamatic. And the Instamatic was loaded with a cartridge. So you could open the little box of film and it had this little film cartridge. And out in broad daylight, you could be at the beach and flip open the back of your camera, take out the the exposed cartridge and put a new cartridge in and shut the back and you're good to go. And that Kodak Instamatic was a little rectangular thing, probably five inches wide, two inches thick, and maybe two and a half tall, just a little rectangular camera. The, you know, the back swung open and you could drop the film cartridge in. It was probably 12 exposures. And for a flash, there was a little socket on top 
and you bought these things called the, um, what were they called? Um, I think they called them magic cubes. I may have that wrong, but it was a flash cube and it was a little plastic square, um, object and you'd buy them and I think they would come, you know, three to a pack. And this it was a little cube about one inch by one inch by about an inch and a half or inch and a quarter tall. Just a little like plexiglass little cube thing. And on the bottom was a uh, kind of protruding little um, kind of like gear like thing that stuck out the bottom that was circular and had a couple of little metallic um, electrical contacts in the bottom. Well, the cube was divided into four quadrants. Each face of the cube had a little bulb in there, a flash bulb. And for those of you who don't know what a flash bulb is, you've all seen a, a light bulb burn out when you flip on the switch and the, and the incandescent light bulb just goes poof. Well, that's the concept of a flash bulb, except the poof is intentional. So flash bulbs, in order to create that bright flash, instantaneous bright flash, that is now done by, you know, dedicated flash bulbs. In those days, what they would do is take a little, a little glass envelope, a bulb, and stuff it full of, it's probably something like shredded magnesium, you know, like magnesium wool. They would shove that in there and then put two little electrical terminals in there and then seal the bulb closed. So when you applied a little bit of voltage to this thing, it would light up that magnesium wool and just burn out instantly, but create a very bright flash. That was a flashbulb. They were good for one use only. Well, the little, the little instamatic uh, flash cube had four of those bulbs in there. So if you wanted flash, there wasn't a switch you turned on or anything. If you wanted a flash, you just stuck the flash cube in there. One that had not been already burned. And when you depressed the shutter button and the shutter opened, the flash would go poof and make a bright flash. Then when you advance the film, the little, the little flash cube would rotate 90 degrees and present a new unburned flash bulb facing the subject. And so these were good for four, four shots and, you know, they would come and you always had to be buying these little flash cubes. Well, I had one of these cameras. It was probably one that my father had, and then he had moved on to some better camera and ended up as my camera. So I had a Kodak Instamatic camera, and I used to carry this around, and most of the photos in that album from that time period were shot on that little Kodak Instamatic. Of course, in daylight, you didn't need the flash cubes. But I had that camera with me in the summer of 1980, and this was really the first summer that our band Pony Express was really getting out there trying to be a band. We, we were, you know, the band formed in 1979 when I was down at ABAC, Abraham Baldwin Agricultural College down in Tifton, Georgia. And I've told that story before. Go back to some of the early episodes and if you care to and uh, want to hear about the formation of Pony Express. But here we are in the summer of 1980 and the reason I'm I'm telling you this is because that photograph that my son said, hey, who's that guy in the hat? That photo was taken on July the 4th, 1980. And it was taken in Osceola, Georgia. Osceola is a little town 
a little bit northeast of Tifton, Georgia. And if you're not geographically very literate, if you were to leave Atlanta, heading south to Florida, about 100 miles before you hit the Florida state line, so you're around, I don't know, 100, I don't know, 200 miles south of Atlanta, you'll pass through Tifton, and Osceola is up northeast of there, 15, 20 miles away from Tifton. <laughs> don't send me emails correcting my geography, but that's, you know, it's down in South Georgia. So the summer of 1980, the Pony Express, I have sent out all our cassette tapes that we recorded up in the upstairs room at the college on my little cassette recorder, edited them down with my dual cassette deck and made a, a three-song demo, or maybe it was five, duplicated all these cassettes that I bought, you know, 10 in a box at Radio Shack, hand-wrote labels, printed off our little brochure, business card, had letterhead, mailed this stuff out and got all these festival offers to play at festivals all over the Southeast, and we were doing it. Well, one of the festivals we played in the spring was called the Fletcher's Lake Bluegrass Festival. It was run by a guy named Bobby Fletcher in Osceola, Georgia. Owned a bunch of land down there. He used to let us guys go down there and deer hunt on his property while we were down there in college. Well, he put on a bluegrass festival. He had a spring festival and a fall festival. But So we played. We had played the fall festival in fall of 79. We played the spring festival in 80. And he came up to us at the festival and said, hey, I'm doing this show, a country music show on the 4th of July. How about you guys come down and play for that? And we said, okay. So we were booked for the 4th of July country music spectacular at uh, Fletcher's Lake. I don't remember what they called the, the actual festival grounds. I want to say they called it River Bend. I don't know. I don't know. It was not the River Bend. There was a later bluegrass festival down in Osceola that was called River Bend. But anyway, it was definitely Fletcher's Lake, which, by the way, Fletcher's Lake was not really a lake. It was sort of a swamp. Behind the stage was the lake, but it was really just a, it was a swamp. It was not a lake. Uh, but anyway, I digress. So we're booked, and Bobby sends us a stack of flyers in a brown envelope so we can help promote the show. <laughs> and uh, we see that there's only two acts playing Pony Express and the Tom T. Hall show. That's it. July the 4th, Osceola, Georgia, be there or be square. So we were, of course, looking forward to this. And one of the preparations that we made during that summer to kind of up our image a little bit is we went to a store, kind of a Western attire store, and the whole band went together and we bought matching shirts. Back in the day, that was the thing. And we bought these good looking, they were sort of a cream colored western looking long sleeve snap front snap pockets type of shirt cream colored and the yoke and the pocket flaps were sort of a pattern sort of a a very subtle paisley type of thing and little vines and flowers in it very good looking shirt uh, <laughs> for 1980 
we bought four of those shirts, spent all the money we had pretty much, but we thought we really need this. If we're going to go out and be a bluegrass band, we got to have those matching shirts. So we had the shirts and July the 4th rolled around and we all piled in together and drove from the Atlanta area down to Osceola, Georgia to the old festival grounds where we had played a couple of times and we pull in and let me describe the scene to you. It's basically a South Georgia pine palmetto area where basically Bobby Fletcher probably took a bulldozer and bulldozed down an acre or two of pine trees and burned them or something and hacked out a stage, built a a nice covered stage with a little, if you're looking at the stage, you know, it's up four feet off the ground and go down a couple little steps and he had a building there. That was the warm up room. And then if you pass through it, there was a door to the outside and basically just hacked out and planted some grass. And, you know, on festival day, there would be hay bales sitting all around. You could, you know, if you really packed the place, you could get five, 600 people in the area. Um, so that was the physical location. So we arrived early, of course, and, you know, went in that little building and we're getting our instruments out and warming up and kind of rehearsing the stuff we we're going to do, figured out what we we're going to do. We only had to play one set, one 45 minute set. We were the opening act for the Tom T hall band. Not a lot of people around at that time. The people are starting to arrive. I don't see any signs of Tom T hall whatsoever. So we're there in our new shirts, just warming up backstage. Well, we hear what we figured out was a large bus pull up just outside the door, 10 steps outside the door. We can hear this diesel motor running out there. Thinking, yeah, Tom T. Hall is here. And that thing is just idling, you know, idling and idling and idling. Air conditioner's running. That kind of thing. Nobody really gets off. I think maybe maybe the driver got off. We went out and took a peek at it. In fact, we, we kind of walked around the bus a little bit. Well, people were starting to arrive, and there we were standing around Tom T. Hall's bus in our matching shirts. And this lady came up to us and just had one of the festival flyers in her hand, and she handed it to me and said, Can I get your autograph? And I, I said, Sure. And I just signed Brad Laird across and the other guys started signing and somebody saw this woman doing it and four or five other people came up and just, we were just signing autographs standing next to Tom T. Hall's bus. I think the lady probably thought maybe we were, had just stepped off of that bus or something. I don't know. We didn't uh, burst her bubble and tell us, well, we're just the Pony Express. We're not part of Tom's band. But anyway, that was kind of a fun little observation. So we go back in the back and we're, we see a couple of his band members come in and they're, they're uh, lugging in some instrument cases and stuff. And up on the stage, the stage is already set. They've obviously been there. The drum set is set up. There's a pedal steel out there. There are guitar amplifiers and you know, the whole stage is set and some of their instrument cases are already in the back there. So we know that, you know, they've already been down here and sound checked and stuff like that. And they probably went to, you know, eat breakfast or something and they're just pulling up. So some of the band members started coming back in the side room there. 
And well, in a in a few minutes, here comes Bobby Fletcher. And Bobby Fletcher's a kind of a little short, stocky fella. And he owned all that property, and this was his show and his festival, and he liked us a lot. Like I said, he used to let us come down there and deer hunt, me and Goose. First time I ever went deer hunting was on Bobby Fletcher's place down there. I didn't get a deer. But anyway, Bobby comes out and the crowd is coming in and, the, you know, the crowd's building up and, well, it's getting about time for us to go on. And he says, boys, just go out there and, you know, put on your show. And, you know, anyway, so somebody, I don't know who it was, announced us and on we walked the Pony Express and we started playing our bluegrass thing. And I, I won't go through all the details of that. I probably still have the set list from that day. We're figuring on about 45 minutes. We pack all of our best stuff. At that time, we, we had probably three sets of music. We whittle it down and put all the good stuff in one set and uh, proceeded to do our bluegrass thing. And the audience is sort of digging it, especially those people who thought we were Tom T. Hall's band. <laughs> they were really digging it. It's amazing how what, what someone thinks you are can have a great effect on what you are to them. But anyway, we're just playing our little set. And periodically, as we're getting toward the end of our set, I'm looking over toward the side. And I see you know Tom T. Hall's band members hanging around back there. And I'm sort of waiting for the, uh, you know, the two finger, two more, the one more, you know, and the slicing of the throat. I, you know, I'm waiting on that. So I know, I know kind of when to wind this down. It doesn't happen. We're getting down to the end of what I've written down on a piece of paper is our set list. There is no more. Well, I see one of the guys in obviously one of the musicians in Tom T. Hall's band. He's, he's got a jacket on and maybe a vest or something. He's, I can tell he's one of the musicians and he's giving me the sign. Keep going, keep going. He's like doing this rolling motion with his hand. Keep going, keep going. So we keep going and we go and we go and we go. We play probably an hour and a half. <laughs> We're starting to look nervous. We're wondering if they're ever going to come out. Finally, he gives me the one more sign. We play our last song, go off stage and on walks Tom T. Hall's band. They all go filing past us and we're, you know, just... We're coming off there going on. They got a drummer. They got electric bass. They got electric guitar. They got a pedal steel player. That's all I recall. And they come out and the bass player, I think it was the bass player, steps up to the mic and he's emceeing and they go into their show and they sound really good. These guys are pros. I mean, they're playing all kind of stuff. And they played and I'm expecting to just look around the room there and see Tom T. Hall standing there. But I I don't see him. Hmm. His band keeps on playing. The, uh, the bass player is sort of doing front in the show. He, and I remember he, he did this song where he went through all these famous country music artists and he did his Johnny Cash imitation, his Hank Snow, his Ernest Tubb, and they had all this stuff. It was a really entertaining thing to, to see, but I'm still looking around. Where is Tom T. Hall? And I noticed there a banjo case sitting there on a couch. I'm looking at this old banjo case and on the handle was a little tag, like a luggage tag. 
And I'm looking at it, and sure as a world, written in ballpoint pen, it says Tom T. Hall. And it has his address. And it Nashville, Tennessee, and phone number. I'm like, that's Tom T. Hall's banjo. He's got to be here. Well, this is the type of thing I, I've I've done so many times. I go to my mandolin case and pull out a pencil and paper, and I go over there and I copy down Tom T. Hall's name, address, and phone number. I figured this is a real uh, find here. I now have Tom T. Hall's phone number. I put that in my case. I never did actually call that number, but I thought, you know, one day that could be handy. So anyway, we're hanging around backstage. Tom's band is out there, you know, wowing the South Georgia fans. And I'm just like, when is Tom T. Hall going to come out? This went on for over an hour. I'm thinking, I'm beginning to wonder if Tom T. Hall is even here. That bus is still idling outside. Well, in a minute, the door opens and in walks Bobby Fletcher. And behind him, swear to God, is Tom T. Hall and another guy who I don't recognize. There he is. And he walks straight up to us. Got a, he's got a grin on his face like a mule-eating briars, as they say down south. He's shaking all our hands. I guess he, he, he sees all those fancy shirts. And maybe he thinks we're his band. I, I don't know. He's shaking our hands. Boys, it's good to see you. We're going to put on a good show today. And he just, and I'm detecting something ain't right here. It's what I'm going to call the alkafluence of alcohol. There's a distinct odor of the alkafluence of alcohol exuding into the room. And I don't tell this story in any way to belittle any of the characters in it because we've all had our days where we did things we might regret. But I'm just going to tell you the truth. What happened on that day, July the 4th, 1980. All that glad handing going on. And I thought, wow, this is a big Nashville star right here. And I remembered that Kodak Instamatic camera and, and I grabbed it out of my case and Bobby Fletcher's standing there. He's looking like he's having a pretty good time. They probably been up all night long playing poker and drinking beer. They ain't no telling what those guys did Friday night. Anyway, since I knew Bobby, I handed Bobby the Kodak Instamatic. And I said, Bobby, would you take a picture of us? So we all lined up. Bobby looked through the camera and pushed a button and poof went the flash cube. Tom T. Hall standing there with Pony Express. He handed me back the camera I put in the case, and in just a second, he, Tom T. Hall grabbed his guitar. He never did play that banjo, by the way, but he had it. Stepped up the couple of steps and walked on stage, and their show proceeded. Now, we're standing back there in the back. Well, now, who was that third person? I didn't know who this was. Oh, Bobby was over there joshing it up with him, and I didn't know who this guy was. Well, it turns out that that third person that came through the door right behind Bobby Fletcher and Tom T. Hall was a fella named Billy Carter. Now, back in 1980, James Earl Carter, Jimmy Carter, was president of the United States of America. 
I'm not going to go into this whole tale, but I, I think about this a lot because I live down here in America's Georgia. And if I go out my driveway and hang a right and go a mile, and then I turn right and immediately take a left and go about six miles and turn a left and go about another two miles, I'll be in Plains, Georgia. I'm that close to Plains, Georgia. And I hear Jimmy Carter's Marine One helicopters going over the top of my house every now and then. It's always two of them. Those big twin rotor things. And I go, well, Jimmy must be going up to Macon to get on a plane to fly off to some important international conference or something. <laughs> and I've, I've, had, I've bumped into Jimmy Carter a number of times over the years. I'm not going to go into all my Jimmy Carter stories, but... Jimmy Carter was president in 1980, and, you know, they're running up to the 1980 election where he was not reelected, and, and uh, Ronald Reagan became the president. So that summer, on the 4th of July, we're definitely in the campaign, the presidential campaign. What fun. What theater. And uh, Carter, uh, Jimmy Carter, former governor of, of Georgia and now president and running for re-election, his brother, Billy. Uh, if you don't remember Billy Carter, Billy Carter is like the comical opposite of Jimmy Carter. These these are two like characters invented out of some strange novel. I, I have sometimes wondered if the political theater is is really written by scriptwriters from Hollywood because you couldn't write a more perfect script and devise two more perfect characters than the the uh Jimmy Carter the uh Sunday school teacher uh <laughs> the story of the rabbit uh where he bopped a rabbit on the head the the rabbit that attacked him in a boat and and then his brother you know and the billy beer the whole thing just just go back and <laughs> Go back and revisit the tales of Billy Carter and Jimmy Carter and that whole thing. It's really interesting. And I think this this basic script, which is probably a Rockefeller <laughs> script, was, I think, sort of repeated with the Bill Clinton thing. Because you had Bill Clinton, former governor of a little small southern state. I think they were trying to just rehash the Jimmy Carter thing. And they brought out the crazy brother. You remember Bill Clinton's brother was like some sort of crackhead or something, you know, it's, it's very similar, but anyway, so this is that summer, you know, it's election season and there's Billy Carter. I didn't know who he was that moment. I found out a little bit later, Billy, I guess was buddies with, with Bobby Fletcher or possibly with Tom T, T Hall, but they basically had spent, uh, many, many hours on, Tom's bus, you know, doing whatever. I, I wonder how many cases of Billy beer they went through that Friday night. But when, when Tom T. Hall walked out, I'm just going to put the picture on the show notes page, go to grassdockradio.com, go down to this episode and click on it. And you, you can see the photograph that was taken from the Kodak Instamatic of Pony Express and Tom T. Hall. And you can draw your own conclusions. Anyway, so Tom's out there. They're doing their show. About 30 minutes into it, I think he's pretty much done. He's done all his big hits. The crowd is loving it. They've already been through three hours of music up to this point. And Tom T. Hall 
we're all still standing. The Pony Express guys are still standing around backstage to the side, looking up there on the stage, just observing this amazing Nashville stardom thing that's going on up there. Tom T. Hall looks over to us and he's still on the microphone. And he says, for our finale, we're going to bring out these boys over here and play a good old bluegrass tune. Boys, get your instruments and come on. And the bass player, who actually remembered what the name of our band was, leaned up and kind of took over the emceeing and said, ladies and gentlemen, let's bring back out the Pony Express. And so on we come. We got our mandolin, banjo, guitar, and bass, and we work our way in, try to get near a microphone or something. Tom T. Hall says, boys, let's play that old Will the Circle Be Unbroken. Kia A, boys. Banjo snaps his, banjo is Mark Graves. He snaps his capo on second fret. I'm ready. I'm on my mantle and I'm ready. And A, Goose is ready. Joe snaps his capo on the second fret. And, and Tom T. Hall says to our banjo player, who was about six foot four and probably weighed about 145 pounds. He says, kick it off, Slim. And he was rather slim. He was a very tall, lanky guy. Um, Mark J. Graves was his name. Good banjo player. And so banjo just stepped up and kicked off Will the Circle Be Unbroken in the key of A. And the band jumps right in. We got a drummer. We got a steel player. We got electric bass. We got an upright bass. We got all this stuff. And Tom T. Hall is, is sort of just standing there as it all starts. Banjo goes through his first break, and then we're going to hear Tom T. Hall sing the first verse. And he steps up to the microphone, and he starts, I was standing by my window. You know, you know how the first verse goes. And this flash of glances went around the band of something that's not right. And here's what was going on. Tom T. Hall was singing the song beautifully in the key of A. And I looked down at his guitar, and he's got his capo on the first fret. And he's playing a G chord, which makes him an A flat. So his guitar is a half step flat, and he don't know it. He is vigorously strumming away on his guitar, playing an A flat chord, while the entire band is playing an A chord. And so for about three seconds, there was these glances going around like, what do we, what do we do? We were more on the, what do we do camp? And I remember looking over at that bass player guy. He looked at the drummer who looked at the steel player who looked at, and the, you could tell there was some sort of decision trying to be made. Like, do we go with him or do we just press on? The bass player turns his head and kind of extends his neck and looks out at the sound man way out across the field. And the sound man is squinting and looking and looking kind of puzzled. And I see a couple of head nods and suddenly that guitar mic of Tom T. Hall's was just shut off. He continued to play it. He did not even, I don't even think he knew. Let's just say those boys had had a lot of fun and were possibly under the alkafluence of Inca Hall at that moment. We could still hear that A-flat chord right there standing next to him, but the audience couldn't hear it, and everybody's back smiling and grinning, and we made it all the way through the song to rounds of 
thunderous applause and off stage we went and everybody in the show was over. We hung around in the back packing up our instruments and Tom T. Hall once again hooks up with Billy Carter and out the door they go. They got about 10 steps to get on the bus and they're met with a massive crowd of autograph seekers and they're, you know, taking photographs. I don't think there was any official press there of any kind. You know, the press did follow Billy Carter around, but I think he had eluded them this weekend. I don't remember any, you know, like TV trucks or anything like that. I think he had slipped away. Anyway, while this crowd is out there, we we packed up our instruments and stepped out the door into this massive onslaught of you know, autograph seekers. And we were signing away too. We were signing everything, t-shirts and records, whatever anybody shoved in your hand, you just signed it and smiled, you know, he hops on the bus. They climb up on the bus. The band is back there breaking down equipment and tearing down stuff. And, uh, the bus pulls away just, you know, backs up and works its, and just goes away. Show's over. We hop in the car after, you know, half an hour hanging around a little bit. All the people go home. We hop in our car and drive back to Atlanta talking about this whole thing. Well, I had that camera still in there and probably a few, probably a month later, got the film developed and looked at that picture and thought, wow, that was the day that we opened and played with Tom T. Hall. I don't know what the point of that story is other than I think that you should go out and have experiences very much like that. And you're going to encounter every kind of thing in the world if you get out there and play. And like I've said many times in the past, you can't do this sitting on your computer or sitting on your couch. Go out there, start a band, do something, have some fun. And one day when your son is flipping through your photo album and goes, who's that? You'll have a story way better than mine. Anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening. And I hope you're enjoying the show. Like I said in one of the early episodes, this podcast is not really about teaching. I've got my ebooks, my instructional courses and video lessons and all that for teaching. And the podcast is really for all those other things that there's no possible way I can sell what you just listened to, but I think there's still some value in it. So I hope you're finding some value in the podcast and I hope you enjoy the, all these weird tales and stories and things which cannot, a price cannot be put upon. Anyway, that's that picture and that's my thousand word description of it. And as always, thank you to everyone. And I had a little surge here after the last episode of a, of a couple of people um, becoming Grass Talk Radio supporters. I mean, I got one from a guy who you can set the, the how much you want to donate, basically, to any figure you want. And some guy sent me 20 bucks. I was like, man, that's pretty good. I sent him back an email with just the, the words, wow, thanks. <laughs> As I've said many times, a little bit goes a long way. You know, a lot of people, if you look, if you're into podcasts and you look at other podcasters, there's, there's a very common thing that you see. Podcast starts, 
the episodes are pouring out and then the podcast ends and there are no more episodes. And you, you know, I wonder why is this? And I think that probably the reason why somebody gets to episode 31 and that's the end is because they haven't figured out a way to monetize the thing because you can't do this for free. I mean, if you got plenty of money, you can do whatever you want, but I, I don't fall in that category. But I think if people don't have a way to somehow monetize what they're up to, it's like if you have a band and you can only go so far just playing for free, you know, in order to get better musicians, you're going to have to, you know, shell out a little money. You know, I, I can't do anything about the system that we live in, but the system is money driven from the top all the way to the bottom. And, you know, if, if you've salted away, a, a, you know, you got a lot of money packed away and you got that fat retirement check coming in, that's more power to you, brother. But not everybody's in that situation. Anyway, all I'm saying is you see podcasts come up and they're great and then they go away. And I think, well, I go look at the website for that person and they got a bunch of stuff there, but they're not really selling anything. So if, if no money ever transpires, sooner or later, you're getting the internet hosting bill. And sooner or later, you're going to get the podcast delivery uh, bill and these things. And after a while, and you're looking at how many times it's been downloaded and the countless hours you poured into it and blah, blah, blah. Now it's been a year already and I owe them another 180 bucks. Oh man. You know, so I think if they don't have a way to monetize it, they just eventually go, this ain't worth it. And they quit. I, on the other hand, already have some of those systems in place through my, you know, peddling of instructional material. So that stuff is there, and that's a, a, an easy way for folks to support what I'm doing if you enjoy this. I enjoy doing it, and I want to keep doing it. And I hope you want me to also. And as I always say, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. You can also do that on Stitcher if you're a Stitcher listener. If you go to grasstalkradio.com, you see the various ways that you can um, listen to the show. iTunes, once again, is you know the number one in terms of you know podcast directories. I found a new one the other day that has my show up on it. It's called Player FM. I haven't linked to it yet, and I may not, but there are a whole lot of other places that the show pops up. Anyway, you know, if you feel like... Um, upping your mandolin or banjo skills or anything like that, scope out some of the products that I have. Definitely enjoy all of my free material. And if you can, you know, throw me a bone once in a while, I appreciate it. And that will help fuel the bus, as they say. Anyway, thanks for listening. Hope I didn't bore you too much with this one. And I'll talk to you in the next podcast. Hey, and one more thing. We're going to close out this episode with a a recording made by Pony Express in 1980, the exact same year as this story took place. But I want to mention, if you have a band and you have some original material, something that you wrote or public domain type song, and you would like it featured here at the end of the show, I think I'm going to start featuring complete songs. And please suffer through this one. This was um, 
This was the demo that I told you we recorded in sometime over the winter, early 1980, and sent out to all those festivals in five states and got a few gigs out of it. This is the demo tape of Pony Express from 1980. This is a song called Railroader's Lament, written by Mark J. Graves, Banjo Graves, and performed by Pony Express, which was me on mandolin, Joe Wright on guitar. And Joe, by the way, was one of those guys that came out of the Lester Flat School of Guitar Playing. He played his guitar with a thumb pick, something you don't see that much anymore. And we may have to explore that topic one of these days, why nobody uses thumb picks on the guitar. But Joe did. And Barry Cantrell, Goose, the Goose uh, on bass. So here we are. Pony Express playing an original tune called Railroader's Lament. It's still a great tune. I think the recording is pretty much stinks. The uh, the person that did it had decided that he just wanted the guitar to be super loud and uh, put all this echo on it. It's really, really screwed up mix. But I hope that you will enjoy the song. It's a song that we played over the years for a long time, even after banjo left the band Pony Express. It, it's a great song, Railroader's Lament, and it was written by Banjo really about his father because his father worked for the railroad and uh, was pretty much deaf in his right ear from all those years of sitting in that engine with that big diesel roaring to his, you know, in his good ear facing out the window. Anyway, this is a song called Railroader's Lament. Enjoy it in all of its crustiness. I've seen many tons of coal burn. 
Broke me. 